You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Lynn. Today's topic is What Must I Do to Be Saved? Hello again, my radio friends. It's good to be with you again. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope you've been experiencing the blessings of God this past week. One of my neighbours was recently taken to hospital. It was fortunate that the ambulance came quickly, as it appeared to be a life and death matter. In speaking to his wife later, she said that maybe his time was not up yet. There seems to be some idea floating around that each person is allocated a certain number of years or days, and when the meter ticks over that number, then it's all over Red Rover for that person, and he or she will die. Personally, I'm not convinced that idea is correct, but I do think we should recognise that each breath we take happens because God allows it. If God would withdraw his permission for us to continue living, then we could do nothing about it. We would die. My father once told me a story which deeply impressed me. This is it in short form. It happened in a country town in South Australia. After work one day, some men were gathered in the hotel bar drinking. That was back in the times when bars serving alcoholic drinks had to close at six o'clock. There was a surge of drinkers after five o'clock, as they all had to have their drinks in the hour after they finished work. It was often known as the five o'clock swill. Anyway, in this particular hotel bar on this one particular day, the discussion centred around the existence of God. Some of the drinkers had already had too much to drink and the comments were not always as logical as they might have been. One of the men, probably already a bit tipsy, banged his fist on the counter and shouted, If there is a God, let him strike me dead right now. And then, to everyone's surprise, the man collapsed, fell to the floor and said no more. He died on the spot, and all attempts to revive him were in vain. I think some of those drinkers sobered up instantly, and a sense of awe overwhelmed the barroom. Whether the man died of other causes, causes or whether it was the intervention of God, we do not know. But I'm fairly certain that some of the man's fellow drinkers that day were left thinking that there was no doubt that God existed. I suspect God disallowed this profane man to continue to have any more heartbeats and breaths. 
He had his opportunities to honour God in his life, but chose rather to just experience the here and now. For him, the hereafter meant nothing, and as far as that is concerned, for him there will be nothing more. In Matthew 19, in Mark 10 and Luke 18, is recorded an an event about when someone of note approached Jesus with a big question. We'll read from Luke 18, from verse 9. It says, A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God. Before going on, we must deal with a couple of points. The rich young ruler wanted to know what he must do to get eternal life. If he needed to swim across the Sea of Galilee, he probably would have done it. If he needed to spend a few months of his life as a hermit, he probably would have done it. If he had to have a vow of silence and not speak to anyone for six weeks, he probably would have done it. He was looking for something special to do to get eternal life as he was worried that he was not good enough. Secondly, Jesus' reply was not a retort. The young ruler, probably a tribal prince, called Jesus good. It must be recognised that Jesus was God, living as a human and amongst humans, going through the same life experiences that humans experience. Jesus did not refute the fact that he was God. He just made it clear that absolute goodness is a characteristic of God. In verse 20, the Bible continues. Jesus is speaking. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and your mother. There is no question about which commandments Jesus was quoting. He listed five of the Ten Commandments. That was enough. The young man knew what he was talking about. You would think that this would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to tell the young man that the commandments would soon be done away with. But, no, Jesus upheld the commandments as a standard of proper living. They were that standard then and forever after. The young man replied, All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The story does not have a happy ending. The young man left sad and deflated. The answer he got to his question was not what he expected. The Bible says that he was very rich, and he was not prepared to live without his great wealth and, of course, his lifestyle that went with it. We are to assume from that story 
that this particular young man will not have eternal life. This story illustrates that no one can enter heaven only by keeping the commandments. No, there is something else, something intimate and personal. It is to follow Jesus. So what does following Jesus mean? A follower of someone copies what his master does. He believes what his master tells him. He does what his master says should be done. He is prepared to protect his master's interests. And when his master is not there, he continues in his master's discipline and does not go amuck. You may be aware of certain individuals who've become students of some great martial arts teacher. They are committed to the master in every aspect of their lives and carry out his instructions to the best of their abilities. They take on a new mindset and become different people than they were when they began. So it is with following Jesus, the one through whom we may obtain eternal life. But the, the Bible also conveys this idea in a different way. If you take a concordance and look up the word believe or believes or believeth, you will come up with a number of verses which say how one may be given eternal life. I'll read some of these now. They'll be from the Gospel of John, first of all, from chapter 3, verse 15. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then the following verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And then in the same chapter, verse 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. So, there is no requirement for anyone to climb a lofty mountain, to deprive themselves of food and drink, or to pay lots of money, or to endure pain and suffering in order to have eternal life. It is a matter of believing in Jesus. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It is much more than to say to yourself, yeah, that's okay. I know Jesus is the Son of God, so what? It means, first, that we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, and as such is also God who laid aside his glory, came to planet Earth, and became our substitute. He took our punishment and died in our stead. When we understand that fact, we realize what a tremendous thing has been done for us, and we should become grateful. 
We also take in, that is, accept, the teachings of Jesus and act in accordance to those teachings. His ideas become our ideas. His ways become our ways. The believing that Jesus spoke about is not some shallow, flippant thing, but is deep and abiding. It reaches to the very core of our being. It affects every aspect of our lives. Now, there's another verse from the Gospel of Mark that adds an even richer meaning to the text quoted from the book of John. It's found in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And it's a powerful statement made by Jesus after his resurrection. He said, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Here we have another dimension, baptism. We'll stop here and have a musical break and go on straight afterwards. So, what is baptism? 
Some of you may have been sprinkled with some water when you were just small children and were later told that you had been baptised. But the Bible does not recognise this as baptism. Firstly, part of baptism is belief. You have to be able to understand that you've been a sinner and need cleansing from your sins. Secondly, you have to be able to understand that the way to eternal life is to believe that Jesus, the Messiah, has provided the means for your sins to be forgiven. Thirdly, you have to be willing to follow Jesus, your Master, and you have to be willing to take on board the principles that Jesus taught. Does any of this happen with infant baptism? No. Little children have no idea of the way to eternal life. They have no idea of sinfulness. They have no idea of their need to make a decision to follow Christ. Infant baptism, as it's called, is really an imposition on children by their well-meaning parents. The parents hope that their child will belong to God and be faithful to their church, but the children have no decision in the matter. Secondly, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse, to be completely covered or submerged in. Baptism is symbolic in this sense. It shows that we choose to accept the way of God in our lives. It is symbolic of cleansing from our sins a forsaking of the old sinful way of life and coming up out of the water, cleansed and taking on a new way of life. It is a symbol of resurrection, leaving behind the old way of life and taking up a new way of life with Jesus as your master. This is beautifully expressed in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where it says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is also a public demonstration, a witness that we have chosen to follow Jesus. It's an opportunity to show others that we want to honour God in our lives and forsake the self-serving, unsatisfying life of before. Once, going back for many centuries, the only method of baptism was being submerged in water like a lake or a river. Then some churches built into their church structures baptismal fonts. Some fonts are about the size of a spa, others about two metres square and up to a bit over a metre deep. Even babies were baptised this way, but especially in the cold weather some of those babies were not very impressed and their loud bellowing upset some of the church parishioners. So... In some churches, a new, non-biblical method was adopted, where some drops of water were poured or sprinkled on the child being baptised. 
But there are some church organisations that continue to use the immersion baptism method as outlined in the Bible. Jesus himself was baptised by immersion. He had no need to be forgiven any sins as he lived a sinless life. Some have questioned why he was baptised at all. As he is our example, it was probably to show us how and what we need to do also. The incident is recorded in Matthew three thirteen to 17 It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. Notice that Jesus went up out of the water. Had he been baptised in the River Jordan? Oh, sorry, he had been baptised in the River Jordan and submerged by John where it was deep enough. And when it was done, he went to the shore back to dry land. Another example of being submerged is recorded in Acts eight twenty six to 28 where the evangelist Philip baptised the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 38 tells us, Then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Neither John nor Philip got a jug or something similar and tipped a bit of water over the person's head. It was also not a case of baptising a small child. The people who were baptised knew the decision they were making and intended to live by the principles outlined in the Word of God. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is what is known as the Great Gospel Commission. Here it tells us that people should not get baptised like a Las Vegas wedding. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, in Las Vegas there are quite a lot of wedding chapels. You, for example, can meet someone in a casino, and if you wish you can get married almost straight away, even though you may have only known that person for an hour or two. No, being baptised should be a considered thing. The text in Matthew say this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. People considering baptism should know what they're doing. They should understand that their baptism means that they want to follow Christ, that they should understand the, the teachings of the Bible, and they should understand that the decision to be baptised will affect the rest of their lives.
One last thing today. The Apostle Peter, preaching after Pentecost to the crowds of people who had flocked into Jerusalem, and responding to the question, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was saying that the Holy Spirit would come into the baptized person's life and guide them in their spiritual life and draw them closer to God. I fear that there are some curious ideas about the receiving of the Holy Spirit floating around in religious circles these days, and I would like to deal with this topic on another time. So, friends, until then, this is Len signing off and wishing you many blessings and God's guidance as you consider the things you have heard today. Were you there when they crucified my My Lord Oh, sometimes It causes me to tremble Were you there When they crucified my Lord Were you there When they nailed him to the cross Causes me to tremble Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Causes me to tremble. tremble.
My Lord.